Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire. And today we're talking about President Biden's new student debt relief bill and, and plan, executive order, and what people are thinking about it. We have three guests with us. Joining us in the studio is Phil Schumann. He's executive director of financial wellness and education at Indiana University. And joining us over Zoom, we have Zilvanus Shalanus, I'm going to call him Z from now on, at his request. He is president of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Carly Stevenson is a student debt act activist who works with We the 45 Million. And that organization uh, is a student borrower protection center. It's a nonprofit organization focused on alleviating the burden of student debt for millions of Americans. If you have questions or comments about this, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. And you can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. We're sitting here in the middle of a campus of a big research university, so student debt has been a big issue for quite some time here. And we've had a show on it before. Phil was a guest a few years ago. And so we're happy to have him back, and we're happy to have the other two of you with us, too. I'm going to open up with just a very general question about what President uh, Biden is doing with his executive order, where he's going to try to to basically forgive debt for a whole lot of students. And Phil Schumann, you're sitting here across from me, so I want to start with you. What's it mean uh, you know, in the world that you work in? In the world that I work in, um, this is great news. Um, we've got a lot of people here on the student side of things, on the faculty staff side of things. We work in an institution where student debt is pretty prevalent because a lot of people here that work for this university, that attend this university, student debt is a part of their lives. And so the, through this executive order, you know, our office is financial wellness, and part of wellness is sort of like the mental health aspect of things. And all of a sudden, you're telling people, hey, $10,000 of debt, potentially $20,000 of your debt is going to go away. And just seeing sort of the weight lifted off these people's shoulders um, makes you feel pretty good. And it, it gives it like new energy to a lot of the people who I think who have been sort of feeling down and a little bit just weighted down um, right. by the debt that they've had. Okay, thank you. Mr. Shalanis, Z, from the, the president from the uh, of the Foundation for Economic Education. Um, is this a good thing or, a, or not such a good thing? I don't think it's such a good thing. I think, first of all, the name is wrong. It's not debt forgiveness. It's forcing taxpayers to pay for it. Uh, President Biden is not using his own money to pay for these students' debts. He's using taxpayer money or future taxpayer money to pay for that. So the name is wrong. I think it's expensive. I think it's unfair. I think it's untargeted. It doesn't solve a fundamental problem, and it sets a very dangerous precedent. Basically, taking money from the people who are riding the bus and giving money to those who decided to buy a car, uh, that would be the analogy. And most importantly, I think it sets a very dangerous precedent for future steps like that, either in student debt forgiveness or any other type of uh, student debt, uh, debt forgiveness. All right. We'll get back. We'll get into a lot of those um, positions here in a minute. I'm going to turn to Carly Stevenson. Um, I'm assuming that you disagree with that. 
Yes, I think I think this is great news. I would also say that it's not technically an executive order. It's actually a Department of Education policy that is legal uh, by way of the HEROES Act of 2003. But I think that it is the first step in what needs to be many different reforms to student debt as well as the way that we fund higher education and it is going to help a lot of people it's going to help millions of people and but it is but it needs to be the first step it can't be the last word because it does leave a lot of people behind and we do need to change how we fund higher education in this country I want to get into that and many of the arguments you all were just making. But, Phil, first of all, can you just give us some of the details of yeah. the bill? Yeah, so some of the details, and I'll do a very quick general overview here. But the student loan moratorium, um, you know, I'm going to start with a thing that, I, I don't know, the, the forgiveness piece is probably the biggest part. But uh, with the student loan moratorium, what we do know is it's been in place since March, uh, March of 2020, so since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, basically, borrowers have not had to make payments uh, on their student loans, nor has interest been accruing. As part of um, as part of this forgiveness plan that's been put out, those that moratorium is going to stop effective December 31st, meaning people will start having to make payments once again January 1st, meaning the interest will start accruing once again. So we finally have an, an end to that piece, which has been going on for the past two and a half years. The second piece, and probably the most important one that people have been talking about, is on the uh, in the sense of ten thousand dollars of loan forgiveness for federal direct loan borrowers who live in uh, individuals who make less than one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars per year, or in households that are two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less per year. If they are a Pell recipient, if they're a Pell grant recipient and had student loans, they can receive up to twenty thousand dollars in borrowing. So those are the two. I think the two major points. The other piece that's sort of been proposed is this income-based repayment based on undergraduate loans, um, which I think they're still sort of ironing out some of the details. But basically, with those, what we're basically um, the idea would be that the amount of money that you'd have to pay on your student loan bill if you qualify for this income-based repayment plan would be five percent of your discretionary income, uh, as opposed to the ten percent. Uh, that it currently is, it would also allow those loans to be forgiven if it originated at $12,000 or less. It would be forgiven after 10 years instead of 20 years, as it is right now. And then also, if you are making a good faith effort towards making um, making payments on those loans, the interest would not accumulate anymore, or the government would subsidize the interest on those loans, which is huge because we hear a lot of stories of people who have too much money that they've, they've borrowed, too much money in debt, and the interest accumulated that, or the interest associated with that, is making those balances go up every single time, um, even when people make payments, just because the math doesn't work in their favor. So this is an opportunity, I think, for people to be able to see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel, because that interest is no longer going to be accumulating and making their debt go higher and higher, even when they're making those payments. Let me just get a clarification on that. Yep. Does that mean that they're not able to make the basic principal payment? And so. So they can't if if they owe you know one hundred and fifty dollars in principal and then there's interest on top they can only pay a hundred bucks a month. No, so they're they're able to make the payments, but the problem is is that the interest associated with it is so high. The interest plus the balance is so high that the amount of money that's accumulated in interest is exceeding the amount of principal payment that you'd be making, gotcha. okay. and so therefore it, that balance never goes down. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I can give I can I can give you my own personal example. I did the math on my student debt the other day and not counting the two loans that I've already paid off, my Perkins loan and another smaller Stafford loan, the original for the loans that I still own, owe money on, the original amount that I borrowed for my college education at the University of New Hampshire was forty thousand $40,088.99. And over the past 14 years since I've graduated college, I have paid $41,899. So I have paid everything that I borrowed, but I still owe $31,569. Okay. All right. Yeah, but this is, this is the fundamental way how loans work. You take out the loan, it has interest. And in the, in the beginning, especially at the beginning of the loan, take a car loan or a real estate loan, any other loan, the portion of money going to the interest payments at the beginning of the loan or the repayment period 
is going to be definitely definitely higher. So this is not fundamentally different when it comes to student loans. Any loan, any long-term loan that you take out, the first years, you'll be barely covering the interest rather than the principal. I, the difference the difference between student loans and most other loans that are available to average people in the marketplace is you don't have capitalized interests, right? I The terms of my mortgage, the terms of car loans I've taken out in the past, none of them are similar to the terms of my student loan. In fact, I would argue that the, the 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 loans that are best the, the best loans to compare to student loans out in the marketplace available to your average person really the terms are similar to payday loans or subprime auto loans they are not loans that they are not loans that we that they're not terms that should be given to people who are simply trying to get an education so they can pursue their dreams pursue uh you know pursue their their higher education, pursue a career, that's that's not good for society as a whole to have to have people have to be forced to take out loans with these types of terms simply because they were born to a family that couldn't afford to pay their way to go to college. Here, I think you're making an assumption that the only people who have a borrow money to go to college is the people who cannot afford to go to college otherwise. I mean, any it's just, once again, if you want to compare it to real estate or, or car loans or any other loans, some people des decide to take on a loan uh, because taking out a loan is actually cheaper than paying it, paying it up front. I'm not saying that's the case with most people, but the issue with such large, wide-scale debt forgiveness for forcing other taxpayers to pay for your, for your, for your loans systems, it, it, that does not differentiate between those who had money and chose to take out a loan and those people that you're talking about. But that's very, I mean, by definition, students who come from wealthy families are not taking out student debt. Their families are paying for them to go to school. The, the people that are going to benefit the most from this, from this policy are the 40% of, of student debt holders who have student debt, but in fact don't have a degree, along with Pell Grant recipients and for your listeners, for those of you who, you know, I always like to say that P, the, the P in Pell stands for poor. If you were a Pell Grant recipient, which I was, um, you had extraordinary financial need going into college. Your parents, your family could not afford to send you. So I think that this policy is very targeted. And I think that, but I think beyond that, um, you know, this, this is by definition, people, the people who take out loans, especially for undergrad, they are people who could not have afforded to go to college otherwise. So, um, Carly, is there an argument that people, people did choose to go to college and, you know, maybe it's just the consequences of their choices and maybe to explain that a little more, if, if you were a Pell Grant recipient or if I'm a Pell Grant recipient, why not start at a cheaper place, like a two-year college? That, that's a great question. And I think that there's some fundamental things here. I think, first of all, just because you were born to the wrong parents does not mean that you should have fewer options than students from more affluent families. If you are able to get into a college um, and that college is going to be the best for you in terms of what your goals are, what your career goals are, what other aspirations that you have, um, I think that we need to get away from talking about people's individual choices because fundamentally student debt is a public policy failure. Um, there was a the reason we are in the student debt crisis that we are in today is due to policy decisions made on behalf of the of state and federal governments. Years ago, you would have been able to go to your public university in just about any state you lived in. And if you if you were from a low income or a working class or a lower middle class family, you could spend the summer scooping ice cream and be able to pay the cost of your tuition. We're in this situation because there has been a policy decision on the part of state governments, on the part of the federal government to shift the funding burden from being funded by the state, funded by federal, federal dollars to individual students. And my argument is we need all kinds of people to make a strong functioning society. 
We need plumbers and electricians. We also need people who to take jobs that require college degrees, like nurses and teachers and social workers and doctors and you name it. So I don't think that it's helpful to talk about this in the context of individual choices when really this is about a po policy decisions that people with power have made. And I also don't think it's helpful to try to pit college graduates against people who did not graduate from college, because at the end of the day, we all are better off when people can reach their fullest potential. And that means different things for different people, but we all need we we need all kinds of people doing all kinds of work in order to have a strong community and society. And Z, I have a I have a question for you. I want to I want to follow up, and it's very it's very it's along the lines of of what Carly was just talking about. But I want to give our our contact information again because I think this is a, a fascinating show, and we may have a lot of people out there that want to get in on it. Um, news at IndianaPublicMedia.org is our email. You can also call 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. I, I saw on your website, I went to your website, and I saw a story on there that says um, the U.S. government created the student loan crisis, which sounds strikingly familiar similar to what Carly is saying I you know do you you agree with what she's saying and if so I mean if the government created it what should the government do to try to mitigate it well the, I'm, I'm sure the article we have many articles about that but that was probably talking about subsidizing subsidizing college loans and therefore leading to price increases in college. That, that's the fundamental argument, and that's actually very different from what Carl is saying. I see, okay. But if I could jump on into continuing this discussion, well, I agree we shouldn't pit college graduates against those who didn't go to college, but this is exactly what this policy is doing. It's the people who didn't go to college, as taxpayers, who will pay for people who did go to college. And it is individual choice. Sure, we can talk about society as a whole, but when it comes to the choice, do I go to college? Do I not to go, go to college? Do I choose to make my uh, college loan payments? Do I choose to buy a car? That's individual. And the fact in the way it's going to work is that college graduates, on average, earn about uh, three hundred to 500000 so-called college premium. So basically, those people who went to college, who chose to invest in their future, which is a good thing, they're going to be, during their lifetime, they're going to make much more money than people who didn't decide, who didn't go to college. And essentially what this policy is saying, those people who didn't go to college, those people who essentially, on average, will be making less than college graduates, should be paying the loans for the college graduates. Spin it any way you want, have any argument you like about it, this is inequitable. This is unfair. This is the poorer people paying actually for the future rich people. I don't think that's a good choice. I, I mean, I, I would push back and say that there, first of all, that's true with that that by that argument we should that by that argument all of my friends who i happen to be a homeowner myself but many people that i know do not own homes precisely because they have been feeding the student debt beast uh and i didn't own a home until just a few years ago for all the years that i was renting i was paying for the mortgage interest deduction that homeowners were making right homeowners are building wealth and equity so the same argument can be made that uh that people who don't own homes are paying for people who do own homes to take mortgage interest rate deductions i think we could go tit for tat with all of these things i think not every policy is going you know we have there's lots of different there's lots of different government policies that aim to help different constituencies not every policy is going to help everybody um and i think the answer to that is okay, let's look at if there are people that are that need relief from, from something. I don't think anyone who supports student debt would say that there shouldn't be other policies to provide whatever relief may be, may be necessary for people who do not have student debt. But I think, um, you know, I think that to again i feel like we're 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 pitting people against each other and student debt holders also pay taxes so what i hear is for millions of people their taxes are actually going to directly benefit them for once when often i think all of us feel like 
there's all kinds of things. Every single person has something that the government spends money on that they disagree with. Um, and that's just that's the way that's the way it is. I don't think that this is any more fundamentally unfair than many, many other policies that both that the government enacts through our tax code and through other policies. I want to we can we can continue this tit for tat. But if you want to if you want to use it, I think your, your example with uh, loan uh, with uh, sorry, renters paying to the to the homeowners, that's fundamentally wrong. The, the precise analogy would be homeowners asking renters to give uh, or homeowners asking the federal government to pay a portion of their uh, mortgage. Now, that would be a correct example. Another correct example would be people who bought cars asking government to subsidize cars. That would be a correct example. I want to bring Phil in for just a minute and, and just go back to a little bit broader look at this. Phil, you're the Phil Schumann, Executive Director of Financial Wellness and Education at IU. How has this student loan issue, student debt issue evolved over the time? How's this the equation of student debt changed over the time you've been working in this area? I mean, in the time that we work at this area, I got hired 10 years ago to come in and sort of talk about what are ways that we could sort of mitigate the student loan crisis. And we've seen a lot of other universities do this too, where they've launched. I mean, it's always been a few different pronged approach. Like one of them is basically, what can we do on the financial aid side of things to make sure that students are graduating with less debt? What kinds of initiatives can we put forth that are educating those students about the ramifications of borrowing student loan debt? Um, the financial education piece, which is what I'm most familiar with, is basically coming in and saying, okay, the university from their side of things is trying to figure out what can we do, again, to sort of mitigate financial aid efforts, but then what can we do um, what can we do to educate students on making more informed financial decisions so that they're more responsible and they're taking some action in their own lives about how they can lessen the cost of them being in college? Um, and then obviously you've got you know IU included in this, but again a lot of other institutions trying to do um, you know we've got I always like use this the quote we've got Village Deli uh, the restaurant here in Bloomington whose slogan for a long time has been eat and get out and I sort of feel like a lot of universities have adopted that approach with the idea of education it's like four years and get out and they mean that in the sense of get in take your 15 credit hours every single semester so you can graduate in four years time and then move on, and that lessens the amount of debt that they're taking, because every single time you come back for an additional semester, you have to pay not only the tuition cost, but also the cost of living in um, you know, whatever college town you're in. And so what we have seen through those efforts, um, and again, our, our university, we've seen it from a lot of other universities, like we've seen a significant decrease in the amount of student loan debt, which to us indicates that both you know, I should say what it indicates is basically that there was an inefficiency with borrowing. A lack of education was putting people in the place where they were just taking what was being offered to them and not really thinking about how it applies to their own personal situation. So through a lot of different ways, we're getting back to that point of getting people to borrow efficiently, borrow the amount they need in order to get through school, which is really what we want. Do you have a sense of just how much the cost of college has increased over the past 20 years? So, so this is this is the hard part. Yeah. So college has definitely increased quite a bit. And there's that's been the big part of the discussion is that tuition and fees have gone up significantly. And I, and I know uh, Carly is pointing out, talking about sort of like the, the lack of state funding. You know, you look at the, the state of Indiana, how they funded, we'll say, IU over the last 20, 30 years, it's definitely gone down significantly. And there is an argument to be made that that money, you know, when the university isn't able to get that money through the state, that uh, that money gets passed on to the students. And for a while, you could say that's the reason why we saw such high tuition rate increases. Those rate increases have slowed down quite significantly. Um, you look at our to say that, like, look at our counterpart up at Purdue. Yeah. For the last decade, they've basically frozen in-state tuition, which is fantastic. And so they've done a good job of sort of keeping steady the cost of college. IU, you know, we haven't had it be, you know, level the entire time, but the rate that it's gone up has been very slight. Um, and it's certainly right now, if you look at inflation, uh, the cost of college relative to inflation is not going up nearly as high. And I don't think we're going to get back to that point where co college is going to continue to go up by like five, six percent per year, at least on the public side of things. I, I can't speak for the privates. But what you do see, and I think the problem that we have, and you know, we keep talking about like the cost of college keeps rising, which is fair. Right now, if you're coming to IU and you're an in-state student, it's probably going to cost you around $12,000 a year. 
which is high, but I don't think it's as high as what the narrative suggested is. The problem, though, at least on my end, um, or at least from my from where I stand, is like Bloomington right now is the most expensive place to live in the state of Indiana. And when you send somebody off to college, you are in effect opening up a new household, and that household has to be funded in some way. Um, and that and that's a huge issue. If you've got people coming from lower income parts of Indiana, and all of a sudden you're telling those families, hey, you've got to you. You know, you've got to open up a new household, and especially with the way our town has changed and other big, large public uh, public universities have changed, those college towns, where you're starting to see the growth of those towns, and they're becoming more metropolitan in terms of like amenities and that kind of stuff. It's not getting cheaper to live in those places, and I think that's a part of this discussion that has to happen as well. Is how can we help those people who like? How can we help those people afford to live? I mean, that's the reason why we have like we have a food pantry on campus, which is awesome, but it's really weird to think that that's a thing that has to exist on college campuses. You've also got mental health uh, like mental health services, which is a great service, and I don't want to say like I'm against that or anything along those lines, but those things do cost money in order to get them going, and they serve a great benefit to students. So we have to sort of figure out in this discussion, like, how can we make sure that we're providing all the services that students need, but also making sure that we're controlling the cost so they can afford to be here at the same time? I, I want to ask just Z, and, and you know, certainly if you want to comment on this too, Phil, but I've heard multiple people say that this is just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. This isn't fixing the problem, and I would, I'd love to get you know everyone to react to that. I mean, I, I'll just chime in and say, yeah, it's a Band-Aid of the problem. I think it's a good Band-Aid. Like, we've stopped the bleeding, which is great, but this does not finish the conversation of how can we make sure that higher education is affordable. Um, I, w- I would hope that, that you know the three of us on this call would agree on that, that like there does need to be additional conversations that happen to figure out how can we make sure that students are coming to college, they're getting, I, I shouldn't say that. We're making sure that students get access to the education that they want. It could be four-year, it could be two-year, it could be trade school, whatever. I think the narrative needs to be we as a society need to be finding ways to provide education to people who want it in whatever capacity. But how do we do uh-huh. that in an affordable way? So I like where this conversation is going because we're never going to agree on fundamentals, but let's, right. let's start looking for solutions. So in terms of cost, uh, for the past 20 years all across the world, regardless of the model of funding, the cost of tertiary education basically has doubled. It has doubled in the U.S., it has doubled in Europe, in a bunch of other developed countries, so the cost of college are rising. That's a, that's, that's a big fact. The second bad thing, and I don't think like this is, I don't think when it comes to U.S., it's the Indiana universities that are driving the issue. Uh, the, the thing, the sinister thing that is happening in higher education is that people are taking the the price of tuition as a proxy for quality. And in fact, we're basically once again, it's not Indiana University that is creating the, those kind of issues. It's it's the Harvards and the Princetons who can who can jack the prices to whichever level or whatever quality they provide, and people will still buy. So in economic terms, we're entering into the competition of luxury goods. When people pay pay a bunch of thing, bunch of money for a thing just because it's expensive, no government problem, no government funding scheme. Even if we were to give free money to people, would ever ever solve that problem. So, uh, as to providing access to education, that's excellent. That's an excellent point, and I think you mentioned trade school, two-year college. Now that could be partial solution. Ironically, what I think most people don't realize is right now. U.S., uh, if you look at the population of 25 to 34-year-olds, basically young people, U.S. has, US has much more college graduates. 52% of people in that age range have a bachelor's degree. That is actually higher than Sweden. That is higher than Germany, higher than, higher than many other uh, European countries. So, in fact, every second young person in U.S. has a bachelor's degree. And that, of course, leads to that the bachelor's degree or college is becoming less valuable in the workplace. And more importantly, a bunch of people study things that completely do not apply to their, to their real life. Uh, and a good example of that would be U.S. leads the world in the, in the proportion of people who chooses arts and humanities as their major, which is actually one of the lower paying professions. And only 4% of people go into IT and communications, which are the highest paid professions. So you could have situations, and I do sympathize with these people. You go to a prestigious college, you shell about 200000 for four years, you get a degree, and then you get to work in a, in a coffee shop. Of course, that's a bad situation. Of course, it's, it's awful. Of course, you're making way too little to cover, that, um, to cover that tuition. But the fundamental problem is 
that you spend uh, a whole bunch of money to acquire skills that are not applicable to what you're doing right now. And if this trend continues, no system of giving people money will solve it. What, what I'll say real quick on that is like I, I always get tired of like the, the barista narrative, like I'm going to go to school, then I graduate with my arts degree, and then I'm going to go do that. One of the things I like about what the f- forgiveness proposal talks about, going back to that income-based repayment plan, and where I sort of fall in this, and I don't know how many people have talked about it, but I like the idea of capping those payments because what ends up happening is like, you're right, like there are professions that people are going to that are just lower paid. And part of what concerns me is that a lot of those professionals are, professions are the ones that we need in the society to be better. So let's talk social workers, let's talk teachers. And if they're coming out with the same amount of debt as these other people and they're not making the same level of income, there's a like that's a concern for me that all of a sudden we're not going to get quality teachers and we're not going to get social workers because there's a fear of coming out of school with too much in debt and they're not going to be able to cover it through their payments. And, or they're not going to be able to cover their payments, and through having income-based repayment that, that's being proposed, all of a sudden I think that becomes more plausible. Um, and so I, one of the reasons why I like this idea, or at least this conversation that's happening about income-based repayment, and you know we can talk about this more from a societal level too, but it, I think it's giving people the opportunity to go pursue their passions and not have to feel about, like, or not have to worry about the entire financial burden that might have to, have to happen after graduation. But aren't aren't there programs already available in some cases like that? Like um, I know some universities, for example, if you go to law school and then you go work in the public sector, then they will take care of your loans after five years or something. So, I mean, public service loan forgiveness does exist. Um, You know, so that is a thing that could happen for people ten years afterwards. But I don't. But I mean that that involves having to go into nonprofit. That involves going into specific areas, which that is a great program. And if people can take advantage of it, you know, definitely. But I think doing something along these lines provides av- more avenues for people who might not necessarily get it. Like I worked. I was a social worker for years. Uh, made twenty four thousand dollars a year, which fun. Um, but I made $24,000 a year, had student debt on top of that. The hospital that I was working for was a for-profit hospital, so I wouldn't have qualified for that. Um, and I would have loved to have other opportunities, but this was also 2008, 2009 when the recession hit, so jobs weren't exactly, you know, just, well, I wasn't being able to, I wasn't hounded for jobs or whatever you want to say. So I, I think this just provides another avenue for people. Carly, I'm going to come to you here in just mm-hmm. a second. I want to give our contact information again. If you want to join this very robust conversation about student debt, um, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can join us on the air, 812-855-0811, or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Carly, there's been a lot um, from our other two guests, a lot to unpack there. You can take any direction you want. Sure. Um, well, well, I think I, I have well, I have a lot of thoughts, but uh, I think one thing that we, we can't discount is, I, I agree, I'm sure that all three of us maybe would, uh, would disagree on how to reduce the cost of college, um, but I think that we can't discount the chilling effect that fear of student debt or or the 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 unaffordable cost of college has on people who we can't assume that every single person who didn't didn't go to college made that choice freely because they had other options that they wanted to pursue. I know I know plenty of people that I grew up with, people that I've met over the years who wanted to go to college but were were felt like they couldn't because they had they they felt like they they were scared of taking on, they saw other people and how much debt that they ended up being in and you know maybe there were there were something about their particular situation they have family responsibilities you name it where they feel like they they couldn't go and pursue and pursue their dreams and pursue the career that they want to pursue so i think it's important again to move away from this as a sort of individual decision and because when when millions of people are all in the same situation again because of a policy that governments that policymakers pursued um you know that is a public policy failure at that point right and i think especially in a state i i want to make a larger point here 
in in throughout my lifetime in the past 35 40 years the there was a bipartisan decision the 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 government chose pursued a policy of deindustrialization right so many of your older listeners probably were alive at a time where you could graduate high school walk into the factory in your hometown and walk out with a good job that was likely a union job and that you could have for 30 years and raise a family on that and be and have a pretty good life so while through globalization and free trade agreements and and other things while the united states was pursuing this policy of deindustrialization the same policymakers are telling students these jobs are going and they're never coming back and the only way that you can that you can mitigate against that is to go to college you got to learn new skills probably everyone on this on this show has heard people say learn to code right they're telling out of work factory members learn to code right so you're you're telling people they need to go to college you are you're pursuing a policy that is destroying hundreds of thousands and millions of jobs that sustained people for decades and at the same time you are pushing the the cost of college on to students that that is a public policy failure and i think ultimately the the solution to this problem is that we need to we need to have state and federal funding of higher education as well as trade school as well as two-year colleges there's lots of different ways to pursue to pursue greater education but we need to we need to stop making this about people's individual choices because at the end of the day we need electricians, we need plumbers, we need doctors, we need nurses, we need social workers. And nobody should have to nobody should have to put aside their career aspirations or their educational aspirations because they were born to the wrong family. Z earlier at the beginning of the program, you said that this sets a dangerous precedent. Uh, can you oh, absolutely can you yeah can you talk about um, what particularly you you mean by that specifically well I think my my other co-speakers in this program already mentioned that that's just the first step more student debt needs to be forgiven so we can from a political standpoint absolutely what prevents uh, the president this president next president whichever president sign another uh, sign another decree uh, using whatever technicality uh, to to make taxpayers pay more so that's already a, a big political precedent. A bigger precedent that I'm worried about is, uh, once again, you can expand if this is okay, if this is seen as a, as a wonderful political tool, you can apply that to any other uh, area of life. The way I, on purpose, I like to, I like to compare this to the, the car ownership, and that basically the total student debt is pretty much the same amount as the total vehicle debt that Americans incur. Uh, there's, and if, if you, and if, if you follow the path that Carly says, just because it involves many people, it's a public policy, then you can basically have all sorts of interest groups demanding that other taxpayers pay for them. Nothing prevents, uh, what prevents car owners from arguing that government and taxpayers should pay for their vehicles? What prevents uh, from homeowners saying that government should pay for their houses? If we, if politics sort of devolves or degenerates into whichever politician is promising more money to the special interest group, that's not democracy anymore. I don't even know what, what to call it. But that's very dangerous. I think it, it, was, it used to be in the third world countries, or less developed countries, that, we, that the, the, the elections came down not to ideas, not to policy, but who's going to receive how much money from whom. And I think this is a very dangerous precedent in actually in, in setting, a, setting a situation in which large groups of large groups of people, politically powerful people, get together and demand that the government, or more precisely the taxpayers, pay for their expenses. So, so Phil, I want to follow up with you on that, um, because one of the questions our, our producer sent us is, is this program just for current college students, or what about future college students? Yeah, that's the hard part with this, is that uh, this this is only qualifying for people who had their loans dispersed prior to July 1st of this year. So if you're a student borrower for this fall, 
this does not qualify. Or, yeah, if you borrowed money for this fall semester or whatever, it does not qualify. Uh, if you are a sophomore, a junior, a senior, and you've borrowed money before this, or a grad student who's borrowed money before this, you do qualify for it. So yeah, there's a weird cutoff line on that, and you know that that does present problems, and that goes back to the conversation of like this is a band aid. It's not fixing the overall issue. This is just like a stopgap to to stop the bleeding. And now we got to figure out how we're just going to suture up that wound, whatever you want to say, and fix this for good. Do you also have data on this $10,000 or $20,000 for Pell loan people? I think I've seen the figure, maybe the average debt is $29,000. How much difference will this make? So the way the way I always frame it um, when I talk to people, and this this is pretty much an estimate, but under a stand, standard 10-year repayment plan uh, for student loan debt, you know, $10,000 would probably save you about $100 a month over the course of that 10 years. $20,000 would save you about $200 a month. And if you think about that from an equity, a quality standpoint, whatever you want to say, like, that's big for a lot of families, especially coming out of the pandemic. That could provide stable footing for some families. It could allow them to just get back to where they need to be to move forward. It could allow them the ability to start building up an emergency fund or something along those lines that could prevent themselves from having to you know, go further into debt as a result of another crisis that could happen. Like, we still have too many people in this country who are financially fragile, who are one thing away from happening to just have all sorts of things explode in their lives. And that actually goes back to Carly's point earlier, saying like 10 th- or 40% of the people who have. Uh, who, who are going to have their loans forgiven were people that you know went to college and didn't dropped out, and that dropping out is for whatever reason. It could be something that just they didn't think they they could handle it anymore. But there are a lot of things that happen. Like there's no longer a traditional 18 to 22 year old college student. We have college students who are parents. We have college students who are caretakers of elderly, and anything could happen in their lives that have to cause them to drop out. And then to ask them, you know, because of these other things that happened, you still have to shoulder the of debt. And I get that that's what debt is. You take something out, you're supposed to repay it. But this is an opportunity for those people who just like had poor luck on their sides to get them back to a point where they can start having that economic mobility that they were trying to go for in the beginning. So I'm and not I, sure. Uh, just uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Carly. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I agree with Phil. And I think that what this is about is it's, it's time to stop and it, it does not go far enough. It's a good first step, but it's time to stop punishing students and former students for public policy decisions that they did not make. Right. Um, you know, in individuals, this is individual students did not did not change the way that higher education is funded. And we know now that that the cost of tuition, especially in the past few years, Everyone on this call agrees that it's unsustainable and that it, it needs to be reined in and that there's lots of different ways of looking at that. But I but it's time to stop punishing people for for getting caught in the net of they went to school at a time when costs were exploding. They didn't make those decisions. And we do need to look forward and make policy changes so that we don't keep having this issue. That's 100% correct. And I don't think that any, you know, there's not a single student debt activist who would disagree with that. So hear me out here. I think this is probably going to be unpopular, but Jim Banks tweeted something out following this bill and said that you're taking away the greatest recruiting tool of the military at a time when the military is really suffering with recruits. I want to broaden that out to also talk about we're losing family farmers. Indiana is a huge manufacturing state. What does this do to those kind of professions? I might say Jim Banks for yes. our other two guests is a congressman from the Fort Wayne area. Yes. So so I think uh, I think that he said the quiet part out loud, right? Which is that he he is basically saying that oh no, maybe there aren't going to be enough poor kids to feed into the military machine. Um, I think that that serving our country, joining joining the armed forces, that is a very serious decision. And I think that people should make that decision because they want to serve our country, 
they want to maybe learn a particular skill that they can only learn in the military. Um, but I don't think that anybody should be coerced by virtue of their family's economic situation into entering uh, the armed forces. I think that's pretty perverse. And uh, and I think that um, I think it shows what, frankly, I think what the what Congressman Banks thinks about uh, thinks about the purpose of 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 lower income students and and what what we can what we can give to to our society i don't think that i don't think that making the decision to put on a uniform should be based on uh the number of zeros in your parents bank account um and i also think that uh Family farmers are struggling, um, but again, that that is due to policies that that our government uh, has made, agricultural policies, and um, I don't think that forcing forcing student debt holders to to suffer because of other bad policies that the government has made over the years that has put that have put family farmers in in rough shape is the way forward here. I think that if there is a way to help family farmers and if there is a way to help manufacturers who may be struggling, we should look at that, but we should not continue to force people to suffer just because other people are also suffering. That makes no sense. And it's cruel to everyone involved. I mean, speaking of perversion, my, my two, the, the two other hosts, obviously, they, they, they demonstrate a lot of empathy and say, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that, we shouldn't punish people for following their dreams. So that's, that's all very, very good. But once again, let's not forget what this policy does. This policy takes the money from overall taxpayers, including the ones who came from poorer families, including the ones who are making much less and will continue making less, taking money from the poorer and giving them to the rich. Now, that's the biggest perversion. If we want to talk about perverse incentives, uh, perversion of justice. Uh, this is what this program is doing. Z, I want to ask about um, a lot of people got PPP loans during the pandemic, and then those were forgiven. Uh, there's been an, sort of an argument. Um, you know, both sides have argued that well, it's not the same thing as 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 uh, forgiving these loans. How do you see that? Is that a, in, a consistency and inconsistency? Well. I don't. I didn't like PPP loans. We didn't take one, even though we could have. We could have had. There was a lot of fraud in all these PPP loans, and they did not achieve what they, uh, what they, what they were meant to achieve. So yeah, there is similarity in a sense that you take public money, you take taxpayers' money, and you spend it on on questionable ends. There's a similarity, but just because we had one bad policy or two bad policies, doesn't mean we should have a third bad policy. We should have a good policy. So bad policies should lead to. If we, if we don't like bad policies, we should advocate for better policies, not for additional uh, bad policies. So yeah, of course, government is inconsistent. Government does bow to pressure groups and give taxpayers money to them. But just because it does that, this is no justification for it. I want to- 90% of the people that will benefit under this policy make less than $75,000 a year. So it's just not true that this is a policy that redistributes money from lower income people to the rich. And you know, I'm not I'm not calling Z out here. There's all there's Harvard economists, all kinds of people who are opposed to this policy who have tried to make this about doctors and lawyers and it's really not. It's about people who hold student debt who don't even have a degree so they have all of the downsides of the debt and none of the upsides um, of having gotten a degree and being able to hopefully make more money. Uh, and then it's about people who have jobs that require college degrees, but will never make them rich, will never pay them a lot of money. Early childhood educators, social workers, teachers go right down the line. And not to mention many, many private companies nowadays and i don't know why but you know I, I can't tell you i mean in my career there have been so many times where i've applied for jobs and it's like okay it requires a degree you go into lots of places many many companies nowadays 50 years ago you didn't need a college degree to be a salesperson or be a receptionist or an administrative assistant but many many private companies have made the decision for whatever reason that you have to have a degree to do certain jobs. Um, even, even if there's a strong argument to be made that 
you could learn on the job or it, you you really don't need a degree it's soft skills um so i just it's it's not this is going to overwhelmingly help people who are not rich and who are who are either struggling under the debt and don't have the benefit of the degree or have the types of jobs that are very important to have a healthy functioning society and are never going to make a lot of money for them. Okay, well, we have two minutes to go. You get two points and then Phil gets to finish up. Right, so when we're talking rich versus poor, we're talking lifetime earnings. And all the studies, all the research, overwhelmingly, unequivocally, call it whatever, show it. Those with college degrees earn from 300 to 500,000 more or even more than those without college degrees. So that's what I'm talking and that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking with rich poor dynamic. If a student is right out of college, it might as well be that in his first year of a job he's making seventy five thousand dollars, he's probably gonna make he's gonna be making two seventy five in, in five years. So that's uh, point number one. And point number two, uh, I think what you what you mentioned about the uh, some weird jobs requiring college degrees, well that is the consequence of the fact that half of U.S. adults have a, have a bachelor's degree. And the third point, sure, we need doctors, sure, we need uh, teachers and social workers. Uh, so the bill, if, if that's what you're shooting for, the bill could have said, uh, we will forgive loans to only those who go into education or only those going to, that go into social sciences. But instead, and that's why my very, my very first point was about that this bill is untargeted. It's too blunt. It is not efficient enough. It gives this blanket approach to everyone. So, yes, it forgives loans to teachers, but it also forgives loans to lawyers. 45 seconds. On me? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, 40, <laughs> so a, a couple of things. I just want to go back to the idea of, for the people this who, do, who does affects, and I know we live in a very binary world. This is either good or bad or stuff like that. And what I'm just going to tell you right now is the people I've seen, the people I've talked to, for the most part, are happy with this. I granted, I live in my own little bubble and that kind of stuff, but I people are happy because it's taken a weight off their shoulders, which is a good first step. There's a lot of stuff that still needs to be figured out. For those who do qualify or think they do qualify for this, what we encourage people to do right now is to go to whitehouse.gov or studentaid.gov, sign up for the Department of Education newsletter that's going to tell you how to apply for student loan forgiveness um, if you think you do qualify for this program, and then um, you know hopefully have that application and by the end of the year. Uh, obviously, the other big piece to this is there are some GOP lawmakers who do want to challenge this. So this is still up in the air. So we just tell people, stay tuned for, on all of this to make sure they know what's going on as it relates to loan forgiveness. Thank you very much to Phil Schumann from the uh, IU Financial Wellness and Education Center, Executive Director, and Z Shalanis from the Foundation for Economic Education, and Carly Stevenson, a student debt activist with we the 45 million for co-host sarah whitmeyer producers benta boutier kathy knapp and nathan moore and engineer mike paskash i'm bob zaltzberg thanks for listening production support for noon edition comes from smithville fiber internet streaming tv home security and automation in southern indiana more information at smithville.com and from bloomington health foundation providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future healthcare in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales, more at edsindiana.com. <laughs>